0: Our lectionary takes us to Mark's Gospel, the 13th chapter today. The beginning of a passage that's here in Mark and also in Matthew's Gospel referred to as the Olivet Discourse, um, because the majority of it comes from Jesus teaching his disciples when he was on the Mount of Olives. So... Jesus has been teaching in the temple. That's where we get the last couple of passages that we have covered. And so here in Mark 13, verses 1 through 8, we read. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teachers, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when are these things going to happen? and What will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So over the last two weeks, we've had Jesus in the temple teaching and answering questions. We've had some wonderful revelations about Christ and And his kingdom, its principles, and how we are to distinguish ourselves from the practices of this age. we got the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then last week we had the warning of the teachers of the law. And the commendation of the widow's offering, her devotion. That it it was a commandment. Not a commandment, but a commendation. So the commandment is not that we all give everything as the widow does, but that we would consider her devotion where she was placing her trust, and that we follow that example. And he did all this while also kind of pointing out that the teachers of religious law had become those that had prayed on widows. And set up a system where they were able to basically rob them of their homes so that she could be in this position in the first place where all she had was those two small coins, but still felt compelled to give them to the temple. So now Jesus and his disciples are are leaving the temple after this kind of teaching and heading to the Mount of Olives, talking along the way in the midst of what started as Probably a fairly simple observation. Sometimes when you're walking and you see something that catches your eye or amazes you, you just kind of you're talking out loud. And I'm sure that's the sort of thing that was happening here with Jesus' disciples. Wow, isn't this a remarkable structure? And then Jesus pulls back the curtain a bit and hits, hints at things to come. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds now as we take a closer look at it. We know that your word is powerful and active, and it's alive today. This scene that took place nearly 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world can speak to us and enlighten us in our situation today. And that, that is amazing. That's your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we open ourselves to your teaching through your word not for our good but for your sake and your kingdom's sake in your name Lord Jesus we pray Amen Amen. so this passage like I said starts with this fairly innocuous innocent observation look teacher what massive stones what magnificent buildings and the stones were large they were magnificent that The temple itself was constructed out of limestone, and the smallest stones weighed between, these are the smallest stones, weighed between 4,000 and 10,000 pounds. The smallest stones, and the largest, thank you. See, what was coming. The largest stone of them all, possibly the largest stone in all of antiquity was 45 feet long, 17 and a half feet thick and 12 and a half feet high and is estimated to weigh over a million pounds These builders used dry construction, which means there weren't there wasn't a mortar uh, Place Because we well, you know if you got a million pounds stone, it's not it's not going anywhere once you've got it in place So we're gonna take a look at this pastor's gonna go uh, kind of verse by verse and I want to point some things out to you that might not be obvious at first blush. Verses 1 and 2, we get Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction. Not one stone will remain on another. Well, this is a bold prediction concerning a building with such massive stones laid at its base. How could this be? How could it be that not one stone would remain on another? Well, what we know about the destruction of the temple comes from historical documents that are outside of Holy Scriptures. And our only first-hand account of the Roman assault on the temple comes from the Jewish historian, Josephus Flavius. Josephus was a former leader of the Jewish Jewish revolts that, that led to Rome kind of crushing them once and for all in 87. And so Josephus was a former leader of this Jewish revolt He had surrendered to the Romans and, and then won favor from Vespasian. And in gratitude, Josephus took on Vespasian's family name, Flavius, as his own. We join his account as the Romans fight their way into the inner sanctum of the temple. He writes, one of the soldiers, without awaiting any orders and with no dread of so momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary. As the flame shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength, for the sacred structure which they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their very eyes. When Caesar failed to restrain the fury of his frenzied soldiers and the, the fire could not be checked, he entered the building with his generals and looked at the holy place and the sanctuary with all its furnishings, which exceeded by far the account's current in foreign lands and fully justified their splendid repute. As the flames had not yet penetrated the inner sanctum but were consuming the chambers that surrounded the sanctuary, Titus assumed correctly that there was still time to save the structure but the soldiers the soldiers were spurred on by the expectation of loot, convinced that the interior was full of money and dazzled by observing that everything around them was made of gold, Caesar dashed out to restrain the troops when a soldier pushed a firebrand in the darkness through the hinges of the gate, and when the flames suddenly shot up from the interior, Caesar and his generals withdrew, and no one was left to prevent those outside from kindling the blaze. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered, it, and countless people were caught up by them and were slaughtered. There was no pity, no pity for age, no regard. According to rank, children and old men, laymen and priests, all alike were butchered. Through the roar of the flames streaming far and wide, the groans of falling victims for nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. The Temple Mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the number of slain greater than those of the slayers. Soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. Those who experienced this destruction in eighty seventy must have thought at the end of the world, And no wonder that Jesus wept over Jerusalem knowing that this devastation was coming because they did not recognize the day of their visitation, the scripture says. That God had come to them in Jesus, the Messiah. Certainly, Jesus saw all that was going to happen or else he could not have foretold that one stone would not remain upon another. It seems odd, doesn't it, that that the Romans wouldn't have just repurposed the building? You know, rubbed the noses of the Jews in it by making the temple a a public bathhouse or a temple to Caesar? I mean, the pyramids of Giza are older and they're still standing. Why not Herod's temple? Well, remember how I told you that the temple was built with dry construction? No order was used. Well, this is significant because it explains why no stone was left upon another, despite the stones weighing several tons each. Can you guess why this is? What role the absence of cement played? It's not that the stones were easier to move. I don't know the last time you've tried to move a stone that weighs ten thousand pounds, but I would be able. To Are there any ideas? Well, the uh, cracks and crevices would allow air to be sucked in and ban the flames inside. Yes, that was part of what aided in the destruction. But as far as the actual moving of the stones, there was something between those stones that the soldiers were after after the destruction. gold melted. It was the gold. The gold that had melted off of the decorative panels and the ornaments that filled the temple ran in rivulets in between these very large stones. And so if you're a soldier and part of your pay is the plunder, and it's stuck between those stones, you're going to find a way to get at it. So it was the gold that had once beautified the temple that led... To the complete destruction of the building. No stone was left on another. So that's verses one and two. Verses three and four, the, you see, the disciples look for certainty and signs. The disciples are looking for certainty and signs. When, when will this happen? How will we know? The disciples could likely imagine who would be behind the destruction of the temple, even if they couldn't fathom how someone was gonna tear down a building with stones that weighed so many tons. They were, after all, currently under Roman oppression and seen how ruthlessly they had snuffed out prior rebellions. Furthermore, thinking of Jesus as their Messiah and thinking he would have a role to play in this upcoming clash of nations and being sort of Jesus' generals in a sense, I'm sure they had great interest in knowing how it was all going to unfold. Tell us the secret, Jesus. Tell us the secret, Jesus, said the four that had been with Jesus the longest. The first four called by Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. What will be the signal that suggests we're gonna we're gonna make our pivot? We're make our pivot from the peaceful Messiah to the one that's ready to do pitched battle with the Romans. Well, there's two things going on here that I want to draw our attention to because I think we fall into the same error as the four disciples mentioned here. First, any time that we think, and maybe it's not even a conscious thought, but it's just sort of an attitude of mind, thinking our relationship with Jesus entitles us to special revelation or Information about what is to come. We live in a world that's sort of titillated by what's next, what's coming around the corner, predicting the future. I mean, why wouldn't Jesus want to let you and I in on his plans for the future? So when we entertain that sort of imagination, we fall into the same error as the disciples. And second, Let's say Jesus humors us, and we get a glimpse of what's to come. Our second error is believing that if we were given that information ahead of time, that it would affect our faithfulness and preparation. Amen? Amen. What do you think? <laughs> I know myself, but what do you think? If, if given special insight into what was coming, especially if it entailed difficulty or distress for us, you think it would chase or change the way that we face the days ahead would we be more faithful and prepared you know I don't I don't know I mean it may just reveal in us the darker side of our character that that maybe maybe the mercy is not knowing what's around the corner because crises can reveal our character and I think the longer we've we have to worry about something that's out there. I think, John, you you said something to this effect even on Saturday. Sometimes it's a mercy that you don't know what's out, a year out, because if you, if you got the laundry list of everything that was going to transpire, you might shirk back. But when it comes one step at a time and Jesus is there with you, you're like, all right, we can do this together. Finally, we come to this last section of the passage, which is, in Mark's Gospel, it's just the beginning of what's called, like I mentioned earlier, the Olivet Discourse, because it it records the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples about things to come while on the Mount of Olives, verses five through eight. Verses five through eight, we get Jesus' warning of deception, disaster, and a delivery. First, deception. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. Perhaps you know this already, but just a reminder, Jesus was not the first Messiah to show up on the scenes. There were many Messiahs that preceded him, and there were many that followed, even up to this day. Only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus that we follow revealed in holy scripture and through the historical record so he says do not be deceived so he warns of deception then he warns of disaster wars rumors of wars earthquakes and famines and and he says such things must happen but the end is yet to come you ever wonder about that such things must happen really Well, they must happen because we live in a fallen world. The whole of created order is under the curse of sin. If you doubt that, just watch World News tonight. Amen? Amen. I mean, wars and rumors of wars and famines. I mean, that's standard fare. Every night of the week. And then Jesus talks about a delivery, a delivery, right? We call that um, bringing a baby into the world. That's you, the delivery room, right? I always thought that was kind of funny because the baby's been there the whole time. It's not, being, it's not like FedEx, you know, Bing Bong, you, know, you know, or the stork dropping off. It's The baby's been there the whole time, but it's, still we use that language of, of delivery. And just as the individual must be born again, and step by step our, our old way of living, our old man is dying and the new man or woman is being brought to life, it seems that this is the same process that all of creation will endure. Redemption of the heavens and the earth, all of creation it's part of God's plan. Consider the Apostle Paul's treatment of this aspect of God's plan for creation in Romans 8. I want to read from the message verses. Sometimes it's helpful to hear it in a little bit different language. So, Romans chapter eight, starting with verse nine through the end of the chapter. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking of yourself more than him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcomed him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, that he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself? When God lives and breathes in you, and He does, and surely He did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With His Spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. Verse twelve through fourteen. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial get on with your life. God's Spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expected. Greeting God with childlike what's next, Father? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we, if we go through the hard times with Him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with Him. That's why I don't think that there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyous anticipation begins. All around us, us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's it's in us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are are yearning for full deliverance. Amen? Amen? This is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are, in a sense, enlarging in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging in us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired of the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside, helping us along. If we don't know what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our words, with sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. He knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail of our lives our love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape our li- the lives of those who love him along the same lives, or the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision about what his children should be like, he he followed it up by calling his people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. Romans 8, 31 through 39 in the message. Some of this is going to sound maybe a little more familiar to you. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, what can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble. Not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. As it said, they kill us in stone blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this faces us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. Amen? Amen. That is good news. Is it not? Heaven and earth, this creation as it now exists, may pass away, but God says... Through Jesus says what? says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. We can trust in Jesus. We can trust in his word. These are the things that will last. This is what matters. God, God's word and the immortal souls of men, women, and children. Church, may we always be invested in these things, which truly last. Let us pray. Lord God, throughout human history, we have raised monuments, some of them to you, some of them to ourselves, some of them to kingdoms, to emperors, Presidents, to leaders. We look at those structures and we say, wow, that's impressive. And then Jesus, our cornerstone, comes along and says, Really? You're impressed by that? Help us to be invested in those things that truly last, those things that really matter. God, you are eternal, alpha and omega, Jesus, beginning and end and all that is in between. Your word said heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. Your word lasts. May we be invested. And the souls that you have placed in men, women, and children are immortal. As your word read in Hebrews said, in the passages earlier in scripture, in Daniel, mentioned that some will be raised for everlasting life and some will be raised for everlasting shame and destruction. We don't like to think about that. We just don't. But it matters. The things that last. The things we're invested in. What we spend our time and our energy arguing about, thinking about, dreaming about. May we be invested in things that last. For the praise of your Jesus Christ.